0: Hi, this is Barry Fitzgerald, Garen Perro columnist for Stockhead. Welcome to another edition of the Explorers podcast. Now, uranium stocks have been strong performers since mid last year on expectations that the long-awaited uranium price renaissance is close at hand as the world gets serious about its attack on carbon emissions. As we know, nuclear power currently accounts for about 10% of global power generation and a much bigger percentage of carbon emission free generation. So it's got a key role to play in the attack. On carbon emissions. Now, take that with the underproduction of uranium compared with annual consumption and the need to incentivise new production supplies through higher prices, investors have dived back into the long unloved sector, prompting the rebound in equity values. The uranium price, in spot terms, has come up from $24 US a pound in January last year to $31 US a pound of late, all in anticipation of that recovery I've been talking about. But there's still a long way to go before the US $60 pound prices most consider necessary for things to really light up in the sector arrives at the front door. It's against that backdrop that we're catching up today with Lotus Resources, the 85% owner of the Kalakira Uranium Project in northern Malawi. It was once a Paladin Resources project and was a producer between 2009 and 2014. Lotus picked up the project in March last year and is working on a feasibility study due to be released in the first half of calendar 2022 into a planned restart of the operation as a £2.5 million a year producer. Lotus trades under the code LOT and was last quoted at 22.5 cents for a market cap of $214 That figure reflects its status as one of the few uranium stocks out there capable of responding with a production story to the much anticipated uranium price upswing. Lots to talk about with this one, and we have Lotus Managing Director Keith Bowes with us today to give us the rundown on the company and its plans for Malawi. Hi Keith, welcome to the podcast and thanks for your time
1: today. Thanks very much Barry and thanks for the invite to come and have a, have a chat with you.
0: Great. Now, Keith, you're a bit of a a newbie in the MD role, but I understand your knowledge of the project is pretty deep. So I think it'd be a great idea if we could give listeners some background on yourself, uh, your professional career, and what led to you taking the MD reins.
1: Sure. So so my background is engineering. Um, I'm a chemical engineer by uh, training, I suppose, but I've been in the mining industry for almost 27 years now. The first part of my career was predominantly in the majors, so I worked for Anglo-American, I worked for BHP Billiton and I worked for Vale for about 20 years or so and I spent the last uh, seven or eight years in the junior space. Uh, in the junior space, I have initially involved in some projects in Africa, including Panda Hill, which was an IOMIA project, but probably of the most relevance to this conversation is the work I did with Boss Resources, which owns the Uranium sorry, the honeymoon asset in uh, South Australia. So I was with BOSS for about three or so years, fundamentally kind of in charge of all of the technical work that they did in terms of the redevelopment of the honeymoon asset. We looked there at converting the process from a solvent extraction-based recovery, ion exchange recovery, and also did a lot of work around the well fields as well. So that's really where my background from Uranium comes in, is with the work with that. But as I finished off the feasibility study with Honeymoon, um, I was asked to have a look at the original due diligence that was done on Calakera by Lotus. I participated in that and made the recommendation that Lotus should go ahead with the acquisition of Calakera, stepped back a little bit after that, but then was asked to come back again and do a similar role that I did with Boss from a technical perspective. And I did that for six or seven months prior to stepping up to the MD role in February of this year.
0: Okay. And enjoying being at the helm, as it were?
1: I am. Well, it's, I mean, obviously quite different from having a purely technical role. I mean, there's gets opportunity to have conversations like this with various investors. I, I I think I am enjoying it, yes.
0: Great. Now, before jumping into the project and the company's restart plans, let's get a feel from you where you see the uranium price is headed.
1: I think, as you said in your opening uh, remarks there, Barry, I, I, there's a realisation within at least the explorers and the developers that a uranium price of something in the order of $60 per pound is required for us to be able to restart and for any other project really to be able to restart. The reason why we got involved in uranium is we are very, very bullish. And when we look at the fundamentals in the market, we talk about the supply and demand curve. There's obviously a significant gap in that at the moment. And when you look forward into the future, I mean, with all the conversations at the moment about electrification, about zero carbon emissions, The opportunity for Uranium, I believe, is immense, and I can only see the price going up in the, well, hopefully within the relatively short time as well.
0: Right. Okay. So now let's look at the project, a globally significant project in its own right, but uh, give us a snapshot first of its uh, production history so we can get some context around it.
1: Yeah, sure. So the asset itself um, operated between 2009 and 2014. And during that period, it produced about 11 million pounds of, um, of uranium. Now, when you look through the production profile and you go back through Paladin's annual reports, you'll see that when they first started operating in 2009, their cash costs or operating costs for the asset were about $50 per pound. And that was in some part due to the ramp up in those early years as well. But when they really started to hit their straps in 2012 and 2013 after undertaking a quite a significant optimization program, their costs were around the $33 to $35 per pound mark, mm-hmm. which is where our scoping study also indicated as well. But at that point in time, we know that the uranium price, at least the spot price, was on its way down. And when they shut down the asset in 2014, it wasn't due to any depletion of resources or any technical issues with it. It was purely a financial um, reason, and that was because the spot price was at $35 per pound, which was equivalent to their cash costs at that point in time. Mm. So a well-known producer that has been de-risked, in my mind, from a technical perspective, both in terms of the production, in terms of the capacity, and also importantly, we know that all of the product that was produced from Calakira was accepted by the Western Conversion Facility. So that's Arano, Confidion, and uh, Cameco as well. So the product itself that comes out of the operation is well known in the industry, and we think that's going to provide a significant benefit for us when we go out and start negotiating offtake agreements.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay, now... If you could put aside your shyness and expand, if you can, on the project's advantages over over the other proposed projects that are lining up out there. I'm thinking here particularly about the low capital intensity.
1: Correct. So when Paladin um, initially built the project, they spent almost $200 million on the project. So that included, obviously, the plant and all the associated, associated infrastructure, the tailings, dam, the camp, access road, and those types of things. So when we look at it as a restart opportunity, we're not planning on expanding the production. The plant itself at the moment is capable of producing between three and 3.3 million pounds per annum. We don't see a need to expand that production. So when we restart the asset, All that we are required to do is to refurbish the existing equipment that's on site that has effectively been on care and maintenance since 2014. Hence the reason for the low capital and the low capital intensity we have. So that's one benefit I think we have. $50 million to restart the asset. It's fairly low, I think, when when compared to other uh, projects out there. We also touched on the other one of being a proven producer, and I think that does de-risk the project a lot. We know we can produce a good quality product moving forward. But also importantly, we recognize there are some upsides to the project still as well. So the upside for me is really on the exploration. We think there's still opportunities for further expansion of the resource, both within the existing mining license, but also on the exploration licenses that we have. And we have five exploration licenses within Malawi. So that's one side that I can see the resource growing and the life of mine growing from that. The other one, I think there are some technical things that we can still do that will have a significant improvement on the project. There are some really simple ones like power. At the moment, the plants and all the associated infrastructure is all powered by diesel gen sets, which we know when we look at the numbers cost between 28 and 32 US cents per kilowatt hour. There's an opportunity for us to connect to the national grid. There's an opportunity for us to recover power off the acid plant on site. And, of course, there's the solar, wind, and battery opportunity as well. So there's a real opportunity for us to reduce our power costs moving forward. But the one that I'm most excited about is the ore sorting technology. So ore sorting is a fairly well-known technology within the recycling industry and probably made it a move into the mining industry between 8 and 10 years ago. We have recently undertaken some proof-of-concept work with a company here in Perth, a Steinart, And we've been very, very encouraged by the results that we've seen from that. We're doing the assay work now on the samples as well as some bleaching test work as well. But we can see a definite potential for us to feed the Calacara ore into an ore sorting unit and produce a higher grade feed for the plant. We'd expect to take something, say it's in the 800 ppm range up to 1,200, or if we look at our marginal stockpiles that are maybe running at 400, hopefully we can take those up to 700 or 800 ppm which makes them very, very economic feeds for the plant going forward.
0: Okay. And specifically, if possible, I know ore sorting technologies uh, tend to be uh, held pretty close to the chest, but what is it about, uh, what would it be picking up uh, in terms of the ore feed that can say so material can be rejected and the higher grade goes through and the less mass going through?
1: So the two detectors that we've investigated so far, one is purely a colour detector, so it's an optical thing, we're seeing that the higher-grade rocks that are calicera are normally quite darker than the waste rocks. Right. So the rocks being predominantly predominantly calcite and silica versus the uh, reduced arcos in the ore. So there's a definite colour difference between it that we're exploiting. But the other one we're having a look at is an um, XRT, which is effectively a density measurement, but a density measurement at the nuclear level. And when you combine that together with the laser unit that uh, the Steinhardt optical sorter has, we're able to get a relative density of a rock as well. We know uranium is a very, very dense atom compared to the calcites and the silicas and that kind of stuff. So we are able to differentiate based on that as well. And I think what we're going to end up with is a combination of these various detectors. So using color, using XRT, and maybe some other detectors as well to combine together to identify what are the high-grade rocks that we should be keeping compared to the waste rocks that we should be rejecting from the process.
0: That's mm. no, a wonder it hasn't happened before, but I, I guess it's all a function of advances in technologies that make this uh, sort of uh, concept possible.
1: It is. I mean, and I think one of the things that has actually happened that has made uh, this ore sorting more applicable to the mining industry is really the capacity of these units. I think when they first came out, the capacities were relatively low. And in a mining application, that obviously means multiple units of these sitting there. But with the increase in, I suppose, processing capacity because you've got a very short time between the detector identifying a rock to when it has to make a decision to accept or reject at the end of the belt, by this increasing in processing capacity and processing time, we're able to push many more tonnes through a single unit. And I think that's been the key driver to bringing it through into the mining industry now.
0: Mm, And I guess really that this. Not all that difference to uh, the hand-sorting of ore by old-timers in gold mines or base metal mines.
1: Exactly right. I mean, the alternative would be to have multiple people standing on a belt and hand-packing, as you said.
0: (laughs) Right. Now, just as a matter of interest, Malawi, when you talk about the national grid, is that hydro-based?
1: There is some hydro there as well. There is hydro Mm -hmm. within the country. They're starting to move into some solar stuff as well from what we can see, and I know there's a number of discussions with various um, European companies about them installing new hydropower there as well, Uh, Mm. also something they're having a look at. But at the moment, the majority of their power is hydro-based.
0: Right, Uh, because in this increasingly uh, ESG-driven world, the the ability or potential to produce green uranium, as it were, would be a, a real plus.
1: I think that's, and that's a real key thing for us. We're very, very keen on this ESG and green uranium. Hence the reason we're looking at things like recovering power off our acid plant, which we know is zero carbon emission, connections to the grid, and then the solar, wind, and battery option for us as well to get a real good mix that we believe will give us a very low carbon footprint.
0: Mm. Now, Keith, I'm talking to you from lockdown Melbourne, but I was just wondering what the COVID situation in Malawi is like, and is that affecting your plans there?
1: It it has affect our, affected our plans. We've been very fortunate in that we did. We've very tightly controlled our site. So we've had no COVID cases on our site whatsoever. Mm-hmm. There has been COVID in some of the local villages around, um, but we've been very, very fortunate in that we've been able to manage the number of people coming onto site. We only have a relatively small workforce at the moment, uh, 19 permanent employees on site, of which only seven actually live in the camp. And probably about 20 contractors or so that come in and out as well. We've been able to control that quite well. Um, I think what's probably impacted us the most was last year when we were starting to look at doing some um, suppose site investigations with engineers and all that. Access for international people was very, very difficult. That has relaxed a little bit now. And we are able to um, get some South African engineering companies and uh, consultants and contractors up on site to do these investigations for us now. So at the moment, we don't see it as a big issue, but it's something we recognise can be an issue and we need to manage it appropriately. Mm.
0: And how would you characterise local support for uh, return to production at the project?
1: very, very strong at the moment. And I think um, when you talk about uh, Lotus owning 85% of Kalakira, the other 15% is owned by the governments of Malawi. So they're very, very interested in getting the operation back up and running again. And the local communities recognise job opportunities and also benefits they're going to see. As part of our new mining licence agreement, we're required to have in place a community development agreement which uh, legislates that... Uh, 0.45% of the gross revenues, when we're back up and running, need to be fed back into the community, and we've already had the initial discussions with them, and they've provided us with a list of, I think it's 30 or 40 individual projects, which they would like us to have a look at when we restart back up again. Mm. So, from that perspective, from the jobs perspective, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of positive uh, uh, feedback we're getting from the local community when we start.
0: And just to be sure, that percentage figure you mentioned—that's at the has to be directed at the local community rather than finding its way into provincial or national government levels. It's
1: Local—it's defined within, a, I think, it's a twenty-five-kilometer radius of the site. It's the community okay. located within that area are the ones that benefit from mm-hmm. that from that funding.
0: Okay. All right. now, if all goes well and uranium market firms, as uh, most of us suspect, when would it be possible to be in production? You think?
1: Well, if we take the pricing, the uranium price out of it and we just look at our program of work moving forward, as you mentioned in your opening remarks, we have a feasibility study that we're about to start. That feasibility study should be finished by the middle of next year. And off the back of that feasibility study, we believe we'll be in a strong position to start the financing discussion. So whether that be debt or equity or some other mix to raise the $50 million dollars. Plus also assuming the price is up by then starting to go into negotiate uh, offtake agreements, we think that whole process will take about six months. So by the end of 2022, Mm -hmm. we should be able to make a decision to mine and we think that the refurbishment and restart of the asset will take about 12 months. So quarter one 2024, we should start feeding ore back into the plant and producing from that point on.
0: And just be sure we're talking uh, calendar quarter there?
1: Calendar years, yes, Yep.
0: Okay, excellent. All right. Um, Now, there has been a mention uh, by the company in recent times about some uh, rare earth potential nearby. What's the story there?
1: Yeah, so when Paladin was doing its regional uranium exploration work um, some years ago, they did identify this rare earth anomaly that's about two kilometres or so away from our processing facility Looked looked really interesting, and we went back there last year and did some more field work and did some trenching and took some samples, and I was really encouraged by the results. The samples that we sent in for assay showed that we were getting up to 16% total REOs, total rare earth elements in it, and the average of our mineralized samples was about 3.5%, which is very high compared to some of the other projects you see around. Mm. What really interested me was there was a significant portion of the neodymium and the presidium, which are the two rare earth elements that are used for permanent magnets. And those two rare earths plus terbium and dysprosium probably make up about 90% of the value of the rare earth market at the moment. So some really encouraging initial results. And what we've planned as part of our exploration program this year which is primarily focused on expanding our um, uranium resource, we're actually going to go and do some more field work there and then send the drill rig up there as well to do some holes just so we can get an idea of the footprint and the depth of this rare earth anomaly. We'll probably look at doing a little bit of MET test work. Uh, Rare earths are always quite complex to treat. So we'd like to do some MET test work on some of the samples and really understand what the potential of the deposit is and then make a decision how best the company can generate value from it. Yeah. Okay.
0: Interesting one. Now you seem to be creating a bit of momentum there. I was just wondering how the uh, cash position is to fund it all.
1: So we have um, thirty million dollars at the moment, of which a portion of that is restricted. And what I mean by that is that there's a ten million US dollar surety bond associated with the environmental liabilities that is held right. by the bank in Malawi. So that's restricted at the moment. But we've got seventeen million dollars of unrestricted cash which will see us through until the end of next year. So that'll cover our expiration costs. It will cover our feasibility studies as well as the technical work we're doing now, our corporate overheads um, will also allow us to pay back the There's still further payments required to Paladin. And, of course, we'll also look after the care and maintenance costs of the site until that point in time. Mm. We also have quite a few options that are in the money. And we expect a lot of those to get exercised over the next period as well. So that will provide some of for us.
0: Okay. Alrighty, folks, there, we've, there we have it. A, uh, a near-term uranium production story from a proven producer uh, with a uh, potential uh, rare earths uh, leg thrown in into the mix. Well-funded for the, uh, the push towards a uh, production decision uh, with first production potential in uh, 2024. So with that, Keith, I'm... Gonna say thanks for your time today and
1: best of luck with it all. Thank you very much, Baron. Thanks.